Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. On the program this week, I'll be discussing World Food Day with author and food activist Raj Patel, and he'll be talking about some of the factors that affect global hunger. Also, a discussion with Mike Fudima. He is the energy and climate campaigner for Greenpeace Canada, and he'll be telling us about some very bold, direct actions that have taken place in the Alberta oil sands. We'll also have Music is the Weapon, the headlines, and Around the Left in Seven Days. are the alert headlines for the week of October 15th, 2009. As the U.S. moves to adopt climate change legislation and prepares for negotiations in Copenhagen towards a new global treaty, environmentalists have stepped up their attacks on Canada's oil sands as emblematic of the world's reliance on dirty fuels. With the U.S. Senate set to take up debate on climate change legislation this week, the American oil industry is fighting back. The Consumer Energy Alliance is leading the fight against the low-carbon fuel standard, the most direct assault on the oil sandals to emerge in the U.S. debate. Environmentalists argue that groups such as Consumer Energy Alliance deal in distortions and alarmist rhetoric to scare Americans into opposing any real progress on climate change regulations. It's nothing more than a tactic adopted by the biggest polluters to delay any effective regulation of greenhouse gases, says Ben Schreiber, a climate change and energy analyst at Friends of the Earth in Washington. A group called No One is Illegal says the federal conservatives are quietly transforming Canada's immigration system to make life ever more precarious for migrant workers. A statement issued this week in Toronto says, Some believe that the Canadian immigration system is fair and generous. It isn't. And Stephen Harper and Jason Kenney are swiftly making it worse. They are moving quickly to get rid of its humanitarian part, the refugee process. In its place, they are setting up temporary work programs that are designed to push most migrants into vulnerable, precarious and temporary jobs without access to services or the ability to unionize. Even more than immigrants, temporary migrants like farm workers, live-in caregivers, construction workers and others face exploitive and precarious working and living conditions. The statement continues, they pay taxes and build communities but are unable to access the most basic services. The federal government is being taken to court for its decision to withhold hundreds of pages, some decades old, in the RCMP's secret file on Tommy Douglas, the trailblazing socialist widely acclaimed as the father of Medicare. The Canadian press filed a motion in federal court this week. Uncensored access to the historical records is understood to be fundamental to the functioning of a democratic government and societies, the motion reads. While censorship of historical records is a frequent hallmark of totalitarian governments. Portions of Douglas's file were withheld from release because they concern security matters still deemed sensitive or because they reveal the names of others that have come under RCMP scrutiny over the years. Last Monday, about 800,000 public service employees took part in a one-day general strike in Romania. Numerous offices, administrative departments and schools closed for the day. Hospitals restricted services to emergency cases. 
Further strikes are scheduled through the month of October, and the unions have indicated that they will ask their members to boycott the presidential election on November 22nd. Since last Wednesday, state employees have been picketing outside the headquarters of the Socialist Social Democratic Party and the Liberal Democratic Party. Both parties have proposed a comprehensive austerity program involving severe cuts to wages, as well as increased taxation and savage cuts to health and education services. The government, headed by Prime Minister Emile Bock, prepared these measures in close cooperation with the European Union and its international financial backers. The International Monetary Fund (IMF) has demanded harsh austerity policies ever since it offered Romania several credit injections amounting to almost 20 billion dollars in order to rescue the Balkan state from bankruptcy. It's feared that it might now become difficult for the government to achieve its stated fiscal savings, thus jeopardizing the fulfillment of its agreement with the IMF and, in turn, severely affecting Romania's exchange rates and economy. It's time politicians in North America begin taking the type of politically risky measures to cut carbon dioxide emissions that their counterparts in Europe have already in- initiated, says the Danish minister playing host to the coming United Nations conference on climate change. And Connie Hedegaard, Denmark's minister for climate and energy, says the inaction of some is making life difficult for politicians in jurisdictions taking the threat of global warming seriously. Ms. Hedegaard said that when countries such as Canada decide not to force businesses to operate under strict CO2 limits, it causes problems for politicians trying to impose those ceilings on firms within their own countries. "Quote: How am I to convince Danish companies they should go from 20% reductions in their CO2 emissions?" To maybe 30 percent by 2020, if their American and Canadian competitors are not part of that, she asks. Ms. Hedegaard says that in her view, any Copenhagen accord will have to contain four crucial elements: a binding commitment by all of the participating nations on reduction levels, financial aid to developing nations to help their climate fight programs, measures to help countries adapt the new climate re- adapt to new climate realities wrought by a warming planet, and an agreement to ramp up the use and development of green technologies. Quote, "These four issues are interrelated," she said. "In the real world, you're not going to get one of those and not the rest because there are too many interests who will say if we give you this then we must have that Reflecting the increasingly desperate economic situation faced by millions of Americans this week 10,000 unemployed workers applied for 90 jobs at a Louisville, Kentucky General Electric plant The enormous response came within the space of just 3 days An earlier announcement by the GE plant calling for 13 maintenance workers drew 700 applicants. The response of the Kentucky state government to widespread unemployment and a major crisis within the state budget has been entirely reckless and short-sighted, critics say. Social pro- programs made all the more necessary by the economic crisis have been slashed. The rush by the 10,000 unemployed workers to claim the small number of jobs offered by GE is a phenomenon not unique to Kentucky. All over the country, workers are desperately trying to find jobs or secure assistance under conditions in which available jobs and resources are completely inadequate. Friday's announcement by the Nobel Committee in Norway that Barack Obama has been chosen to receive the 2009 Peace Prize was met with expressions of astonishment around the globe. 
Many questioned how President Obama could be chosen after less than nine months in office with no discernible achievements on any front. Some say the reputation of the Nobel Peace Prize has never really recovered from the decision to award it in 1973 to Henry Kissinger, who is today unable to leave the United States for fear of being arrested as a war criminal. Longtime students of the Nobel tradition argue that the glaring contradiction in giving the Peace Prize to Obama as he prepares to send more troops into Afghanistan is more apparent than real. The award is meant to legitimize Washington's escalation in Afghanistan, its attacks on Pakistan, and its continued occupation of Iraq, giving them Europe's seal of approval as wars for peace. The selection serves to undermine popular opposition within the United States and internationally to the wars being waged under President Obama, as well as to the future ones still being planned. Critics say that what ruling circles in Europe see in Obama is not a champion of peace, but rather a shift away from the unilateralism of the Bush administration and a willingness to factor European support into the pursuit of U.S. strategic aims. And those are the alert headlines for the week of October fifteenth, two thousand and nine. And now, around the left in seven days for the week of October fifteenth. In nineteen sixty nine, a caucus within the NDP issued a manifesto for an independent socialist Canada. The group, called the Waffle, attempted to align the party with the policies of the New Left at the time. This year marks the 40th anniversary of this political movement. On October 23rd, a conference on the waffle will be held at the University of Manitoba and the University of Winnipeg. This conference will assess the impact and importance of the waffle within the Canadian political landscape and will discuss the future of the left in Canada. Mel Watkins, one of two national leaders of the waffle, is scheduled to speak. The 2009 North of Nowhere Expo begins October 16th in Edmonton, Alberta. This festival of independent media and underground art is held at the Edmonton Public Library and Metro Cinema. The festival includes films on food security, prison justice, and the prison industrial complex and media democracy. There will also be a small magazine fair and workshops by the Beehive Collective, a group that uses elaborately illustrated banners to discuss the effects of colonial colonialism. Militarization, resource extraction, and corporate globalization. Since 1984, photographer and social activist Vincenzo Pietropaola has been documenting the life of migrant agriculture workers in Ontario. On October 18th in Hamilton, Ontario, the Workers Art and Heritage Centre will host a photo exhibit and book launch for Pietropaolo's new book. Harvest Pilgrims: Mexican and Canadian Migrant Farm Workers in Canada. The event begins at 1 p.m. Is criticizing Israel anti-Semitic? This question is the topic of a lecture given by Alan Sears, professor of sociology at Ryerson University. This free lecture will be held at the downtown Vancouver Public Library on October 23rd at 7:30 p.m. A roundtable audience discussion will follow the lecture. New digital technologies are increasingly redefining the workplace and creating more complex models of control. At the same time that they are creating new public spaces for collective action, a conference at the University of Western Ontario will assess these developments and their implications on digital labor. Discussion panels will include representatives from the Association of Canadian Television and Radio Artists, Writers Guild of Canada, and the Canadian Media Guild. This three-day conference begins October sixteenth. Register online at the University of Western Ontario's website. 
October 24th is the International Day of Climate Action, and demonstrations are planned across the country. In Ottawa, protesters will fill Parliament Hill to pressure our politicians to make informed decisions regarding climate change legislation. People will gather on the hill around noon. Remember to use environment. Remember to use environmentally friendly methods of transportation to get there. And that's around the left in seven days. For more information on any of the events listed in Around the Left in Seven Days, go to CanadianDimension.com and click on the tab labeled Events. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I'm joined now by Mike Fudima. He is the climate and energy campaigner for Greenpeace Canada, and he's located in Edmonton, Alberta. Welcome to Alert Radio, Mike Fudima. Thanks. It's good to be here. Thank you for joining us. Now, we want to talk today about uh, something that happened recently. Uh, some Greenpeace employees managed to sneak into the Shell and Suncor tar sands plant. Can you tell us what happened? Uh, well, over the, the last three weeks, uh, we've done uh, three... Uh, more major actions, uh, all on tar sands uh, facilities, uh, to really show the the chain of destruction that, that tar sands operations are. For people that don't know, uh, the tar sands are located uh, in Alberta. Uh, they're the largest industrial and capital project on the face of the planet, uh, comprising an area uh, over the size of, of England, uh, larger than the state of Florida, uh, what is currently uh, now boreal forest, but is being uh, forever turned into a a moonscape-like surface as uh, gigantic machines operating 365 days a week, seven days, uh, or seven, 365 days a year, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, uh, carve into the earth and, and transform it uh, forever. So that sounds like why you did it. Now tell us what you did. Well, uh, it, it, we did a series of three actions. Uh, the first uh, was on uh, Shell's Albion Sand Site, which is a, a gigantic sprawling mine site. Uh, just north of Fort McMurray. Uh, there, uh, over 20 Greenpeace activists uh, went onto the site, uh, actively locked themselves down to two uh, three-story earth movers uh, and a gigantic electric crane uh, occupying the site and shutting the entire mine uh, down for several hours, uh, eventually occupying the site for, for over 31 hours in duration. Uh, a week following, uh, an, over 20 activists again uh, went on to Suncor's uh, massive site uh, that sprawls on either side of the Athabasca River, uh, which has become a huge problem, especially for downstream First Nation communities who are, are have to uh, drink the toxins that, that most of these operations leach uh, directly into the water system. Uh, there, uh, 10 activists actively locked themselves down to one of the conveyor belts that is transporting bitumen in for processing, while others unveiled a gigantic banner that said, uh, uh, dying for climate leadership to you know, really show the urgency and the urgent need to, to act to stem the climate crisis. Uh, and then the third major action was at uh, Shell's uh, upgrading facility just northeast of Edmonton, Alberta, uh, where uh, 20 more activists uh, went on and actively uh, occupied uh, that site for, for over 24 hours uh, until they were uh, removed and arrested by police officials. And can you tell us about charges that have been laid, if any, against, uh, it sounds like, dozens of activists? Well, currently uh, 36 people have been charged uh, for the Suncor incident, 
Uh, people were charged with mischief and then also giving, given a trespassing ticket. Uh, and then for the shell upgrader uh, action, uh, everyone was charged with uh, break and enter uh, and mischief, which are, are indictable offenses in, under the criminal code in Canada. Was the primary um, objective to disrupt the operations or, or just to publicize the damage of the tar sands to the environment? Well, it was both. It was both to stop what is an, an ongoing climate crime and, and to really say, you know, given the impacts, whether it's from a climate change perspective uh, that we know already displaces millions of people uh, around this planet and that will uh, result in the deaths of over 300,000 people this year alone, uh, in addition to, you know, the polluting of the waters, uh, the uh, uh, complete uh, complete uh, uh, denial of any type of treaty rights uh, and change, forever changing uh, the way the First Nation people uh, have lived for generations to the point where they can no longer eat the, the fish, uh, we felt it was time to take, you know, a moral stand and, and just to say no and to say that we need to stop uh, this type of toxic project um, before it goes any further. Uh, at the same time, it was also to convey a message uh, to our world leaders, especially in the lead-up uh, to Copenhagen, which it will be one of the, the biggest and most important climate summits uh, of our generation, uh, and, and to pressure them to make the type of commitments that scientists is telling us we need to make and that the people and, the, and this planet deserve. So this kind of direct action and civil disobedience, you're hoping that it will ultimately stall, or, or, or do you actually hope that this can terminate the production of dirty oil from the tar sands? Well, I think it's not just going to be uh, direct action, but I believe that civil disobedience is going to be uh, a part of it. And I think, you know, not only do we need to uh, completely phase out uh, tar sands production just because of how uh, destructive it is. You know, the emissions are... Uh, eclipse entire countries. By 2020, uh, the tar sands alone will emit more than the entire Czech Republic. Uh, you know, that's not something that we can have happen when we're in the midst of a global climate crisis that is already having uh, severe impacts uh, for people all around this planet. Um, but in, you know, in addition to that, it's, it is to, to get those more, you know, those global commitments. Uh, and the tar sands really represent the worst face of our global oil addiction. But we also need uh, broader commitments uh, by our by leaders uh, all around this planet so that we can actually set uh, a new direction for our future that is much greener, uh, much healthier, and much more sustainable in the end. Um, are there any more actions that you can tell us about in the near future? Um, well, following our actions, there were uh, other actions that took place uh, in France against just one of the international companies that is involved in, uh, in the, the Tar Sands Horror Story Total. Uh, where French activists uh, actively occupied a hotel refinery in France uh, for over uh, 24 hours. Uh, of course, you also have actions that are happening in the UK, and so you know, you're going to see uh, actions and activities all around this planet by not just Greenpeace, but civil society groups, uh, communities all around this world uh, that, are, that get the message in terms of how urgent it is uh, to act on the climate crisis and to try and uh, mount the pressure uh, needed to, to actually get uh, some of our dirty politicians to stand up and be the climate leaders that we need them to be.
This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I've been speaking to Mike Fudima, who is a campaigner for Greenpeace Canada, located in Edmonton. Uh, can you just give our listeners your clothing, closing thoughts on the uh, issues? And of course, the there are the uh, international uh, the conference coming up in Copenhagen. Uh, your final message? Well, I think my final message is that we need everybody's voice. You know, in whatever way that you can speak out, uh, whether it's through civil disobedience, whether it's through uh, writing a letter, whether you know it's just through supporting uh, people that are able to, to take action. Whatever you can do, uh, the time for, for action is now. We need to create as much pressure as possible and, and take back our planet. Mike Fudima, thank you very much for joining us here on Alert Radio. Thanks so much. This is Alert Radio. I'm Jeff Hughes. I'm joined now by author and food activist Raj Patel. Welcome to Alert Radio, Raj. Good to be here, Jeff. Thank you for joining us. Uh, this broadcast, we are interviewing you because World Food Day is fast approaching. And we'd like to ask you to remind us, first off, about the global food price crisis and tell us how it came about as uh, briefly as you can. And is it over? Um, well, you're right that there is a global food crisis. Uh, t today, um, for the first time ever, there are a billion people who are uh, food insecure, who, who live on, uh, or malnourished indeed, who live on less than uh, 1,900 calories a day. Um, and, and that's a crisis that, although is not being reported terribly widely in the media, uh, affects far many more people than the, the economic crisis as, as it's being reported. Um, in a sense, this isn't new. I mean, a couple of years ago, when there was no financial crisis, um, there were 850 million people going hungry. Uh, that was the figure in 2006. Um, and of course, the financial crisis has made uh, this food crisis a lot worse. But at heart, uh, the reason that people go hungry uh, in, in any time uh, is not because of a shortage of food. We produce more food per person than we ever before we ever have before in human history. Uh, but the reason people are going hungry is not from a shortage of food, but because of poverty. And poverty is really the, the, the root cause of um, the, the hunger crisis today. And, that, and that's not going away anytime soon. Can you tell us some of the factors that uh, led to the acute rise in price uh, about a year ago and, and leading up to the uh, world food price crisis, uh, sorry, the world food price crisis being recognized? Um, well, I mean, really the thing that, that, that put it onto the radars of, of uh, as I say, the, the media in, um, in, in, in the global north, uh, really, I mean, if, if there's one factor, it was the, 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 the rise in the price of oil. Um, because a lot of the food we eat is underwritten by cheap fossil fuel. Uh, every American consumes the equivalent of uh, 2,000 uh, liters of oil every year in their food. And that oil uh, is used in everything from the on-farm machinery to... Um, generating the electricity to, uh, to, 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 to irrigate its land, uh, irrigate the land, uh, to, to transporting all that food. Uh, and when the price of oil goes up, uh, the price of food necessarily follows. And of course, one of the major uses of oil in farming is in fertilizer. Um, fertilizer is, is, in a sense, a very condensed form of natural gas. I mean, it goes through a particular process, but, but, but um, fertilizer is tremendously energy dense. So, uh, again, when the price of oil goes up, 
the price of fertilizer goes up. And uh, during the fr- food price crisis, the one thing that went up uh, in price far higher than any other food was, in fact, fertilizer. So, yes, I mean, the, 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 the increase in price of oil mattered. But then so did things like um, there were some freak weather events. There were bad policy decisions made. There was price gouging by supermarkets, for example, in, uh, in Europe and in, even in South Africa. Uh, governments tracked down uh, uncompetitive behavior by supermarkets who were colluding to drive up the price even more than, you know, than the input costs uh, were going up. Um, in other words, you know, supermarkets were using inflation as an excuse to make even more money. Um, and so it, it, it was a sort of co- combination of factors. And, of course, biofuels uh, also fed into this. Uh, biofuels, for people who don't know, um, it, it's, it's, uh, the idea is that you produce ethanol by growing plants and, and putting them through some, uh, some fairly complicated industrial chemistry. Um, but the upshot is that, that we, we end up growing food not in order to eat it, but to set it on fire. Um, that, that, that's the sort of underlying premise of biofuels. Uh, and range, I mean, the, 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 there's a significant impact on uh, global food prices as a result. Uh, George Bush, when he was president, said that the impact was 4%, and the World Bank said it was near a 70%. So most people say about 30%, about a third of uh, the increase in the, glo- in the global price of food had to do with biofuels policy. Um, so together, all of these factors of oil, of biofuels, of, of bad market decisions, of climate change, um, and finally eating meat. Uh, meat, is a, is a, you know, again, requires a great deal of grain. Um, and when the poorest people only get to eat grain, that means that, that meat consumption takes grain out of the, 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 the hands of hungry people and puts it into the bellies of animals that, that, that richer people can afford. Uh, so together, all of these factors were, were, drove the increased price of food. Raj Patel, author of Stuffed and Starved, can you tell us about some of the examples uh, or some of the things that happened during the world food price crisis? For example, uh, in some areas of the world, did staple foods did not double or even triple in a short period of time? Um, well, I mean, at the retail end, as I say, the, the, the uh, prices did crazy things. Uh, I mean, and certainly, the, the um, for example, the price of rice went up by 30% in a single day. Um, and th- this led to, uh, you know, to, to the, the outbreak of food rebellions around the world, or food riots, as they were called, um, where uh, hungry people took to the streets demanding change from their government. And, and we saw this in dozens of countries. Um, and when it was reported in the press, the, these, these food, you know, they were called food riots, and they usually involved you know, tires burning in the middle of the road and a reporter rather breathlessly saying, minutes ago we were here and there were people with tires and they were very angry. Um, but what, what was, uh, what, what's usually missing from these reports is uh, a sense of the politics. Because whenever a food riot happens, there's both a demand for food and a demand for political transformation. Uh, and that political message always gets watered out uh, in, the, um, in, the, in, in the reporting. But every food protest has always been both, uh, as I say, a, a, a concrete demand for, 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 for food, but also a demand for political change so that, that people have their right to food recognized. Uh, and, and that, as I say, has happened around the world as a consequence of uh, this, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the rapid increase in the price of food. 
October 16th is World Food Day, as recognized by the United Nations. Can you tell us, uh, Rosh Patel, on World Food Day, your thoughts about how international structures like the IMF and the World Bank are actually affecting the ability of poor people to feed themselves? Um, I, I can tell you that, and unfortunately, uh, the, the story isn't good. Um, in the next couple of months, we will have um, a World Food Summit. So you know, in, in uh, November, there's going to be a World Food Summit in Rome, and then after that, there will be uh, a Climate Change Summit in Copenhagen. Uh, and all you know, the, the world leaders will be sort of wringing their hands at, at the, the travesty that is uh, the global food crisis. Uh, and they will be talking about how, you know, the, what, what we need is a, a sort of green approach to, to agriculture and uh, that, that agriculture will, will help us end hunger and end climate change. The trouble is that, that world leaders have entrusted the project of feeding the planet and of greening the planet to the World Bank and the IMF. And the trouble with that is that the World Bank and the IMF were largely responsible for causing this outbreak of hunger in the first place by insisting that government had no role in, uh, in uh, agriculture, by insisting that the only proper forces that, that, that should be responsible for change were the private sector. Um, these organizations like the IMF and the World Bank have been responsible even by their own admission. In other words, the, 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 from within the, the World Bank, assessments have shown that the World Bank has been disastrous in uh, African agriculture in particular. Um, now, a report just came out uh, saying that, that actually what the IMF is doing, the International Monetary Fund, is making countries spend less in the middle of recession. In, in, in uh, uh, 31 out of 41 countries that the IMF is lending in, they're insisting that in the middle of a recession, these countries spend less. And the trouble with that is that it runs absolutely counter to any economic good sense. In the middle of a recession, you want countries to spend more to replace the, 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 uh, the, the, the spending that was being done by the private sector. You want countries to, to actually step up to the plate and begin investment to rebuild consumer confidence. Uh, but the IMF is telling it to do exactly the opposite. Uh, and so it, you, you have these two organizations that have been responsible for catastrophic failures in the past being handed the keys to, to the future uh, of, uh, of, of world hunger. So, so unfortunately, I, I think we have a disaster in the making if we follow our... Um, follow our leaders. Um, but it's important to remember, of course, that we put our leaders there, and, and we must demand change. Um, we, we must demand that they do not uh, hand over the, the fate of, of the world's hungriest people to the world's most um, unaccountable and wretched institutions. Uh, and and th there are a, a number of protests and people's movements working to, to make that change happen, not, not only at the highest corridors of power, but actually on the ground and, and around the world millions of peasants who, are, who form part of this international peasant movement called La Via Campesina, um, which is 150 million people strong. Even you know, the, the Canadian National Farmers Union is a part of it. Um, this movement is actually bringing hope uh, and some very concrete ideas for sustainable change. Um, and I, I, I very much hope that on this World Food Day, we look to, to them and not to our world leaders for, for the kind of inspiration and concrete policy that we need to, to change our world. Well, people can certainly look for events in their local neighborhood to uh, mark and celebrate World Food Day and encourage public discussion. But Raj, I'd like to talk to you about your books. You are author of Stuffed and Starved, and there is a website of the same name, but you are working on a new book. Can you tell us the title and tell us what's in it? 
Um, yes, well, the, the, the new book is called The Value of Nothing. Uh, it comes from the Oscar Wilde quote, people today know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Um, and really what, what I'm trying to do in this book is to suggest that the reason we're in this economic and food and climate catastrophe is because we don't know how to value the world. Or, or rather, the only way that we know how to value the world is by sticking price labels on things. Um, but there are other ways to value the world around us. We can, you know, we, we can decide that everyone has to have a, a basic amount of food. We can decide that everyone deserves the, you know, the, uh, the right to a job. We can decide to value the world in ways that aren't about markets. Uh, and to, to do that, I've sort of drawn from uh, social movements around the world to show not only how we can value things differently, but how we need to. And in, in order to value, we need to reclaim from the market our power, and that means actually becoming more democratic than we are at the moment. Uh, those are some lost skills, but again, th th there are some social movements around the world that can teach us how to, how to value everything. Uh, so that's what the next book's about. Well, thank you very much, Raj Patel. Any final thoughts to our listeners here on Alert Radio as they contemplate uh, the world and the fact that World Food Day is October 16th? Well, uh, I, I think... Um, the, the, you know, the, the, the point of all our uh, contemplation and, uh, and of our alertness uh, is not only to, to, to be better informed, but also to, to, to make change happen. And I hope, uh, very much hope that this World Food Day we, we can start that process of making change happen in the real world. Raj Patel, author of Stuffed and Starved, food activist, and also the forthcoming book, The Value of Nothing. Thank you very much for joining us today on Alert Radio. Thanks very much. So this is Mitch Podolik, and instead of being the host of the music portion, I am now doing an interview with Jeff Hughes, which ought to be very interesting. This coming Friday is World Food Day, the 16th of October, and you're involved in this amazing theatrical project. Could you give us an idea what it's about? Oh, absolutely, Mitch. Um, outside of my duties here at Alert Radio, I sometimes engage in uh, theatrical productions. And so I have written a play called Unequal Harvest. Now, this play was actually written for World Food Day in 2008. And there were three groups who were organizing a, a celebration for World Food Day. And it was actually the United Nations that recognized World Food Day. So it's for some, uh, you know, as long as they've been around, some 60 years, they've uh, chosen October 16th to be the day that people should uh, think about food, and uh, I guess it's no coincidence that it falls between the Canadian and American Thanksgiving, uh, because it really is the one day of the year to think about global as well as local aspects of food. So, so my play debuted last year on World Food Day, and uh, it is an attempt to let people understand what life is like for people in other countries who struggle with uh, putting food on the table, growing food as a profession, or, or even just surviving. This is a this play is about about different perspectives, is it, of different people from different places in the world? Uh, absolutely. Uh, for example, we have one character as uh, a Bangladeshi widow who survived uh, Hurricane Bola in the seventies, one of the worst hurricanes in history, and her life story reflects how poverty 
forces people into the most desperate circumstances. These people uh, take their lives into their hands by moving on to these islands that form in the delta of the Bay of Bangladesh because of uh, the, the geography there. There's always new land forming. It's very fertile, but it's cut off from society. There's no schools. There's no sewage. There's waterborne diseases. But these people are are, are uh, so desperately poor that they're forced to move on to these chars to raise crops and to live. But as I say, uh, the disaster uh, are terrible in that part of the world environmentally. And uh, so she talks about her life, uh, you know, surviving and uh, how um, it, the price of food has doubled in, in her reality. And, and she questions, you know, uh, how does this come to be? You know, my income hasn't doubled in the time that it took for, for rice and, and uh, chickpeas and, and other staple foods. So she, ha- she tells a monologue about, you know, her life story and, you know, is a real example of the human spirit and the willingness to, to uh, face adversity and overcome it. Well, you're a Canadian writer and you've never had to face that kind of adversity. So why, as a writer, would you, A, tackle that kind of subject, and really, what do you know about it? Well, what we have, uh, another character that I could relate to a lot more would be the mother who's on social assistance, and she's a could be a Canadian. She's the kind of person you could be walking past uh, on the street every day here in Winnipeg. Um, so... I based my research on a combination of conversations with real-life mothers who rely on social assistance, as well as reports uh, by international bodies. Uh, um, the uh, Canadian Food Grains Bank was one of the people, one of the organizations that uh, hired me to write this play. And they gave me stacks of reports uh, and uh, statistics and uh, information from uh, different NGOs and uh, and stories of real people and I took many of these examples and incorporated them into these eight monologues which comprise Unequal Harvest and the plan, Mitch, is to take this show on the road. We are doing a national fringe tour. Are you taking eight people with you? Are you taking a whole cast? Or No. Eight characters will be represented by two actors, myself and my partner Cammie, who's another Winnipeg artist and uh, the two of us will be visiting Ottawa, Montreal, Toronto, Winnipeg, Saskatoon, Edmonton, Vancouver, and Victoria. That's the plan, we hope to. As part of the Fringe Festivals. Each of those cities has a Fringe Festival, which is a theater festival. It's unjuried, which means uncensored, so we don't have to uh, kiss anybody's butt to get in there, and there's no censorship involved. So, you know, we uh, are looking forward to going on... uh, a big road trip because it's a three-month affair to visit all these festivals across the country. And the summer of 2010 is when we are planning on taking Unequal Harvest on the road. Um, there's a Facebook group called uh, that you can check out if you are interested in more information. And we are Piecemeal Theatrical Productions. So we hope that alert listeners will uh, get onto Google, take a look for Unequal Harvest or Piecemeal Theatrical Productions, and check us out. Uh, on the National Fringe Circuit in 2010. Well, good luck with the whole project. Thanks very much. Thank you, Mitch. Hi, I'm Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is the Weapon, and today's show is about cowboys. Cowpoke went riding out one dark and windy day Up upon a ridge he rested as he went along his way 
kid in the 50s, one of the things that we'd do is we'd go to the movies on Saturday, every Saturday, and about half the movies we ever got to see were cowboy movies, and about half the cowboy movies we ever got to see was Audie Murphy. 
Audie Murphy saving Indians, Audie Murphy killing Indians, Audie Murphy this and Audie Murphy that, and then that whole genre of movies really, of course, distorted everything there was about the relationship between cowboys and Indians, and of course it also distorted each of them individually. Cowboys are working people on the whole, and mostly it was a pretty gruddy, terrible, horrible job that wiped out your body and pretty much wiped out your life. And here is a really classic song about that very thing. Here's Utah Phillips with the Goodnight Trail. Wrangle or right on the swing You beat the triangle and curse everything If dirt was a kingdom then you'd be the king On the good night trail, on the loving trail Our old woman's lonesome tonight Your French harp blows like a lone ball and calf It's a wonder the wind don't tear off your skin And get in there and pull out the light with your snake oil and herbs and your liniment too You can do anything that a doctor can do Except find a cure for your own goddamn stew On the good night trail, on the loving trail Our old woman's lonesome tonight Your French harp blows like a lone ball and calf It's a wonder the wind don't tear off your skin And get in there and blow out the light Cook fire's out, the coffee's all gone The boys are up and we're raising the dawn You're still sitting there all lost in a song On the good night trail, on the loving trail Our old woman's lonesome tonight Your French harp blows like a lone ball and calf It's a wonder the wind don't tear off your skin And get in there and blow out the light yeah, I know that someday I'll be just the same Wearing an apron instead of a name No one can change it and no one's to blame The desert's a book, road in lizards and sage It's easy to look like an old torn out page Faded and cracked with the colors of age On the good night trail, on the loving trail Our old woman's lonesome tonight your French harp blows like a lone ball in calf. So wonder the wind don't tear off your skin and get in there and blow out the light. Goodbye, old paint, I'm a-leaving Cheyenne Goodbye, old paint, I'm a-leaving Cheyenne 
Leaving Cheyenne, I'm bound for Montana. Goodbye, old paint. I'm a leaving Cheyenne. Ain't a good pony, she paces when she can. Old Bill Jones had two daughters and a son. One went to college, the other went wrong. Wife, she got killed in a pool room fight. Still he keeps singing from morning till night. Right around them doogies, right around them slow. They fire in their snuffy and they're raring to go. Goodbye, old paint, I'm a leaving Cheyenne. Goodbye, old paint, I'm a leaving Cheyenne. Leaving Cheyenne, I'm bound for Montana. Goodbye, old paint, I'm a leaving Cheyenne. That was Leaving Cheyenne with Ramblin' Jack Elliott, and before that, the Goodnight Lovin' Trail, sung by Utah Phillips. Much of the mythology in cowboy lore has to do with the time right after the U.S. Civil War when the carpetbaggers came into the South and into the sort of border states. And uh, there was conflicts that went on forever and ever. And Jesse James and his gang were part of that historical thing. They weren't just some bad guys. They were guys trying to save their families and their lives and all that kind of stuff. And uh, they didn't do it very well which is kind of bad. Here's a here's a wonderful song about the great Northfield bank robbery led by the James Gang and Cole Younger. I am a reckless highwayman, Cole Younger is my name. Deeds of desperation have brought my friends to shame. The robbing of the Northfield bank I never can deny. Which I am a prisoner in the Stillwater jail I lie Of all of my bold robberies, a story I will tell Of a California miner, upon him I fell I robbed him of his money, boys, and made my gift for which I will be sorry of until my dying day It's now I've got fast horses, my brother Bob would say It's now we've got fast horses to make our getaway Our father's revenge And we will win the prize We'll fight those anti-guerrilla boys Until the day we die So we started out for Texas That good old Lone Star State On the Braskas burning prairies The James boys we did meet 
With knives and guns and pistols We all sat down to play A drinking of good whiskey, boys To pass the time away Then we saddled up our horses And northward we did go To the godforsaken country called Minnesota We went to rob the Northfield Bank And Brother Bob would say If we undertake this job We'll always rue the day So we stationed out our pickets And into town to go There upon the counter We struck our fatal blow It's hand to sword Your money, boys And that without delay We are the notorious youngers And we have no time to play Then we got back on our horses And we But the lawmen pursued us and Jim was shot down Three of the brave companions made it home alive Three of the brave companions sleep beneath Minnesota skies That was Mary McCaslin singing Cole Younger, a song about the battle old days. This is Music is a Weapon. I'm Mitch Podolik, and I'll see you next week.
That is Alert Radio for October 16, 2009. I'm Jeff Hughes, and thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks, as usual, to the people that help us put this radio program together. Ben Wood for Around the Left in Seven Days. Also, Mitch Padalek for Music is the Weapon. Our technical producer, Tommy Allen. And our executive producer, Cy Gonick. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine. And you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com. And if you'd like to send us your ideas, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at alert at canadiandimension.com.